0: The book of Hebrews is one of the most challenging, substantial books in the New Testament. There are a few things we think that are helpful to keep in mind as we engage with the author's message. First, we don't know for sure who wrote it. We learned early on that he had a first-hand relationship with Jesus' disciples. So the author's message is based on Jesus' teachings. Second, even though we don't know exactly who he's writing to, The intense and deep connection to Old Testament stories about Abraham and Moses, and the discussion of covenants and roles of priests and sacrifices, suggests that the original audience had a working knowledge of Jewish customs and beliefs. Moreover, the content of the letter suggests that they had left these old ways behind to follow Jesus. Third, as a result of following Jesus, they faced social pressure and hostility from their Jewish community, and also found themselves outside of the broader community and culture. In a collectivist society, being isolated and alone or in a small group without much support put them in a vulnerable position. Facing intense pressure, many of them were starting to revert back to their Jewish practices and traditions. Some had already abandoned Jesus completely and others were drifting in that direction. More than a letter, the author writes a sermon that bounces back and forth between explaining certain ideas and encouraging those reading to keep going, to keep following Jesus. The encouragement takes different forms, including some intense and scary warnings, but through it all, the author reminds them and us that Jesus is superior in every way and worth following. It's a clear and compelling vision for following Jesus that we're excited to explore with you in this series.
1: I've often wondered if the computer keyboard was a preschooler's art project. You know, like they gave a four-year-old some tiles and said, hey, arrange them on this rectangle here. And voila, we have our crazy keyboard. I mean, why are all the keys randomly placed on there? I mean, don't get me wrong, I know how to type, I'm, I'm proficient at that, but it's weird to me that this is such a random, randomness, crazy keyboard setup. It wasn't a four-year-old who developed the keyboard, but a 55-year-old man, Christopher Latham Scholes, back in the 1800s. And you see, the problems of the day then were, well, bank robberies, dysentery, and the bars on a typewriter jamming when you tried to type. I know, crazy, right? And so what he did was he took the common letter pairings and spread them out on this typewriter. Some of you learned how to type on the typewriter, right? You're like excited to see one of these things. It's impressive. And uh, and so then that way the bars wouldn't stick and perfect the keyboard. It was actually made to be inefficient, intentionally inefficient, and it was embraced. Furthermore, he put all the letters of the word typewriter on the top row. So that way the salesperson could quickly type out the brand name and close the sale. Salespeople, they know all the tricks, don't they? Some of you just learned something. (laughs) You're talking at lunch, like, wow, I learned about this typewriter thing today. Now, fast forward to 2023, and we don't have a problem with our keyboards jamming up or anything, yet we still have this intentionally, inefficient design. There are better layouts, there's more ergonomically friendly layouts, yet we're still holding on to this QWERTY keyboard layout. Why? Well, change is costly. We don't like change. Well, we like change when it's on our own terms, right? But we don't like when it's happening to us necessarily. Change is costly. And that's right where the Hebrews are right now. What we're gonna talk about this morning, they are in the struggle of a change. You see, the book of Hebrews was written within 30 years of Jesus' death. These were first or second generation believers. They had come from a Jewish society. The Old Testament was what reigned. All 600 some of the laws were observed to make them right with God. But now, now to be right with God, the game has changed. Jesus, by defeating death and resurrecting after being crucified, has done away with the old covenant. He's fulfilled everything of the old covenant and brought a new covenant. A new covenant that takes all 600 plus laws and boils them down to two to be right with God, to be one with God, to be within the, the perimeter of his promises. It's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That mm, just seems too easy, right? Where are the gold stars? Where, what can I do to prove my love to God, to earn his favor? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And these Christian Hebrews, they're, they're following. They're following Jesus, but now they're starting to fade. And they're wondering if, if this change is really actually what's going to make them right with God. They're thinking about rejecting Jesus and going back to the old way. It's heavy. There's a lot in the balance. And what I find interesting is in our day and age, I think we have a lot of people struggling with with the same. This microphone cord is giving me fits. Sorry. I think we have a lot of people struggling with the same thing of who is Jesus, right? I mean, we show up, we sing the songs, we're here this morning, whether it's to please a parent or to get a free meal after service, or maybe it is to learn about Jesus and grow in our relationship with him. But studies show that if you're under the age of 42, well, a third of us under age 42 don't go to church, don't belong in any sort of faith affiliation in the United States. And 17% of that atheist or agnostic. Who is Jesus? What does he mean to you, to me? Maybe you're here this morning and you're really just here as a warm body because your parents made you or you're pleasing a spouse. And, and you get through this message, right? Is he going to wrap it up yet? <laughs> My prayer for you has actually been that you'd listen in to this scripture passage that we're going to read this morning and, and perhaps see people similar to you wondering who Jesus is and maybe, just maybe, opening yourself up to asking, reflecting that for real in your own life. Who is Jesus to me? Would I accept him as my savior? Maybe, maybe you haven't rejected Jesus, but you're here and you're like, I'm kind of in a desert spot. I'm, I feel dry. I don't know what the next step is for me. My prayer for you has been that you also would gain encouragement, strength through this passage and, and perhaps be prompted by the Holy Spirit to see what it is that he's leading to you next. Maybe you're like, hey, Ben, I am good. I, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. I am flying high in my relationship with Jesus. And that is wonderful. And I'm, my prayer for you has been that when we read this passage today, you would just have more wind in your sails and that you would fiercely follow the Lord and bring it on everyone, shining his light to everyone around. So what is this passage we're gonna read this morning? Well, we're dropping right into the middle of the book of Hebrews. It does get kind of awkward because we're just walking into the middle of a conversation. I don't know if you've ever gone into the break room at work and and maybe some coworkers were going out a little bit and you're like, ooh, coffee can wait, right? (laughs) That's kind of what we're coming into here. I mean, we dive into the deep end right away, but don't worry. We'll we'll navigate through and then there's a, a fantastic charge at the end. We're gonna start in Hebrews at the end of chapter five and we'll go through chapter six this morning. Here's what it says. There's much more we'd like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. I told you we're jumping in. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So what's happening here is the author is saying to these Christ followers, hey, you know Jesus, but you are like babies on milk. You should be teaching each other, others. You should be applying what you know. You should be walking the walk, not simply talking the talk. In the same way, if a baby didn't move on to solid food, we would be concerned, right? And and our spiritual lives, our relationship with Jesus, our spiritual strength. If I had the same faith right now as I did when I was 10, 15, 20, 30 years old, that would be a problem. And that's what the author is calling out here. Now there were three things about their day that were stunting their spiritual growth. Three things that were keeping them like babies and and not mature. They were staying within their comfort zone. They were sticking with their old ties and they were striving to blend in with their culture. These things had them spiritually stunted, immature, lazy. We're going to come back to this slide a little bit later. But for now, let's continue on with the scripture reading. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back repentance, those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. By rejecting Jesus, we crucify him again. Now, there's a couple aspects about our relationship with Jesus that are very important. Two things about your relationship with God that are worth considering. It's genuineness and perseverance. Genuineness being sincere in our actions and words and perseverance, that loyalty to the end. And what the Hebrews are, are doing right now, what's at stake, what the author is calling out is, is these people are, are about to reject God, turning away from him. This is more than questions or doubts or denials. It's rejecting Jesus. The thing is, Jesus can handle all our questions, doubts, and denials. That's that's why he wants us to be genuine with him. He's given us every single emotion we could possibly feel. He can handle it when we bring it to him. We don't have to be prim and proper in a Sunday best to come before God. Just come as you are. Over and over and over again. That's the perseverance. Perseverance. Now, the first time, one of the first times that I took my wife out on a date, I was in college. So I knew every good, cheap restaurant deal. (laughs) Economical. Let's go with that. There was an all-you-could-eat spaghetti uh, thing on a Tuesday night at one of the restaurants in town. And I asked her to go out on a date. And I loved, you know, I housed probably three or four plates of spaghetti (laughs) in and out of conversation. On the drive home, I asked her what she thought about it. She said it was a great time. I was like, yes, all right, score. A few weeks later, I asked her to go back to the spaghetti spot, thinking she enjoyed it, right? She told me no. She said that the pasta was overcooked, it was terrible, the sauce was running, and that she wants to hurl every time she drives by the establishment. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. I was shocked. But I was also glad for her genuineness in that moment because I don't know how many spaghetti meals she would have persevered with me, (laughs) right? And so it goes with our relationship with God. If If he serves up a crappy plate of spaghetti, it's all right to tell him how you feel about it. Just keep showing up and telling him how you feel for real. He can handle those questions, those doubts, or even those times that we've denied. He has forgiveness for us. That's what's at stake here. And that's what the Hebrews are facing. Let's continue in the scripture. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it's useless. The farmer will soon condemn it and burn it. Now, here's a little parable. We're Midwest people, we know how farming works, right? Now in this parable, the rain represents the blessings of God. The rain doesn't choose which field it's going to fall on. It doesn't say, hey, this is a good field. I'm going to fall here. I'm going to skip this field. It's dry. I'm going to go to this one. No, the rain falls on every single field, whether it's fertile or not. Now the harvest, the harvest will come. Those who have received God's blessings and following the Lord, will have a harvest, we'll have a crop. But those fields that are dry, that are cracked, that bear thorns, will be, it will be shown. And that takes proper planning, right? It's not like a final exam. You can't cram for the crop, okay? It doesn't work like that. So that's what what the author's sharing with these people. Hey, God's blessings are raining down. How's your field? Will you have a harvest? Will you have a crop? This has been pretty heavy, right? I totally were diving right in. The only time in the book of Hebrews that the author writes dear friends is coming up in the next verse. So we're on an uptick here. Here's what he writes. Dear friends, Even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers as you still do. God is not unjust. If you feel like God's been unjust or out to lunch or not hearing your prayers or not handling a situation or circumstance the way that you thought it would, he should, I understand that I've been there too, but God is not unjust. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true loving others. This is the application. This is the walking the walk in our faith with Jesus, loving other people in the name of Jesus, applying what we know, teaching others, living in faith. And when we love others, then, then you, what's the result of loving others? Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's Promises because of their faith and endurance. Loving others. Why so we don't become spiritually dull? Why so we don't become spiritually lazy? Love other people with faith and endurance over and over and over again. The enemy likes to attack our faith. How does the enemy attack our faith? Making us question, making us doubt, bringing us into times where we deny God. Questions, doubts, and denials are not disqualifications. They actually assist in our faith formation. Who had questions about God? Well, Gideon did in the Old Testament. God asked him to lead the Israelite army and Gideon said, "Uh, uh-uh, I got some questions about this first. And what did God do? He patiently responded to Gideon's questions and affirmed him. Who had doubts? Thomas had doubts. He said he wouldn't believe that Jesus had come back from the dead until he put his hands in his scars. And what did Jesus do? Show up with a lecture? No, he showed up with the scars and let Thomas put his hand in his and on his side. Who had denials? Huh, Peter had denials. Denials when Jesus was in his greatest time of need. Pete, oh, he's denying Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. And then Jesus comes back to life and shows up and welcomes Peter in and forgives him and restores him, builds the church on top of his influence. Questions, doubts, and denials are not disqualifications. And it doesn't mean that we're rejecting God if we have questions about him. Our questions and our doubts and our denials are actually maybe the place where God wants to do his greatest work, where he wants to take us from spiritual immaturity into one that is on solid food you know those things that stunted the growth of the, the Hebrews, comfort zone, the old ties and the culture. I was thinking like, okay, how about today for us? What, what would stunt our own spiritual growth? And so I cleared the list and I, and I was thinking, well, maybe the first thing would be sticking within my, staying within my comfort zone And then the next would probably be sticking with old ties and then finally striving to blend in with the culture. It's amazing how 2,000 years go by, not much changes with the condition of the human heart. I have a comfort zone. I like staying within it. I like walking into a room and talking to people I know. I like having conversations with people who think like me. That keeps me spiritually immature. That's milk, that's not solid food. I've got some old ties that creep up in my life, some bad thought patterns, some sin that I keep going back to for some reason. some ways that I'm trying to prove myself or my worth to God when he's simply saying, hey, Ben, I'm right, I'm right here. Love me, share others, share with others. And then certainly with culture, I mean, you can't roll out of the rack in the morning without being told, be more, go, win the day, right? Spend more than you make. Put on this front that tells everyone you have it all together. These things stunt spiritual growth. They keep us spiritually immature. They don't move us beyond the milk onto the solid food. To overcome these, we need faith and endurance. We need faith and endurance to inherit God's promises. When we love one another, In faith, over and over and over, we're standing in God's promise. Now here's the thing about promises. There's often an interval, sometimes a long one, between God's promise and his performance on that promise. God's made promises And just because we might be waiting or in the middle or haven't seen it through yet doesn't mean that God's promise isn't true. It doesn't mean that there's no God. That interval, even if it is a long one, doesn't mean that God doesn't exist or that he's not there or that he doesn't hear us. He will perform on his promise. He will perform on his promise. In the next six verses, of of Hebrews the author goes on to share about Abraham about how God came to Abraham and said you are going to have you're going to have a family that will be beyond number multiplied beyond measure descendants you can't even count Now, this was pretty ridiculous because Abraham was reading AARP magazine when this happened. And he didn't have any kids. He's so old. And yet God tells him, you're going to have descendants beyond number. It took 24 years from that promise to the performance on that promise When Abraham had a son, 24 years. There's often an interval, sometimes a long one, between God's promise and his performance. And if you're in that interval this morning, I want to share there is hope. God will perform on his promises. I love the way the author wraps up chapter six. Speaking of hope, it's hope. Hope. As a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus stands in front of God on your behalf, on my behalf, giving us forgiveness, making us right with God. And that is the hope that is an anchor for our souls. I love the imagery of that. I love the imagery of the boat, right? Our soul being being the boat and, and everything we are, the cargo, right? And we're sailing, we're sailing to a heavenly harbor. Yet the waves of doubt and the trials are smashing the boat and trying to take us down. What will be our anchor? Who will be our anchor? Jesus. The gospel is our anchor. And our anchor is the solid rock. It's not the shifting sand. It's rock solid. Jesus is our hope. And with faith and endurance, we can pursue him boldly in the same way that he pursued us on the final night of Jesus life that he spent with his friends they had a meal together And at the meal they must have thought Jesus was off his rocker because he lifts lifts the bread and he says this is my body broken for you. Then he lifts a cup, a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the next day Jesus was arrested, put on trial, crucified and died, but he didn't stay dead. Instead, He defeated death and he rose again to be with God, to bring his Holy Spirit for us to experience, to be one with God right here, right now in this moment. As we enter into this time of communion, I'm gonna pray in a moment and then the host will pass back and forth the, the elements, the bread and the juice. And if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter what church or what background you're from. If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, take the bread and hold the cup and sit with a quiet, personal moment of reflection, perhaps even prayer. And talk with God and thank him for his son, Jesus. And when the time seems right for you, eat the bread and drink the cup. The band is gonna be playing. At some point, they'll start singing. And when they start singing, whatever's appropriate to you to worship God, whether it's sitting there and taking in the music and reading the lyrics, or if it's standing up and singing, you're invited to do Just that. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, you, you are awesome. You're powerful. You're all knowing. You're loving, you're kind, you're strong. You are good. You have grace and forgiveness for us. You are love. As we enjoy this moment of communion right now, I want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. And I'd ask that whatever it looks like for us, that you would fill us with the boldness and the courage and the strength to follow you faithfully to the end. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.